postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane.
Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful library. Happy listening. Welcome to Birthful, Mighty Parent or Parent-to-Be. I'm Adriana Lozada. The biggest risk factor for the most common surgery performed on Earth is not a woman's preferences or risks, but literally which hospital she goes to, like which door she walks through. Um, And that's crazy. That's wrong. Like your number one risk factor should not be the hospital that you show up at. That's OBGYN and ACOG fellow, Dr. Neil Shaw. Neil is a globally recognized expert in designing solutions that improve health with a focus on building equitable and trustworthy systems of care. He's also Chief Medical Officer of Maven Clinic, which is the world's largest digital clinic for women's and family health. He's a visiting scientist at Harvard Medical School, where he previously served as a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology, and he's co-founder of the nonprofit March for Moms. Today, we will be talking about the reasons why cesarean rates have mind-blowingly increased 500% in just one to two generations, how we got here, and what you can do about it. This, of course, is an incredibly relevant conversation within our Models and Places of Birth series, since most births in the U.S. happen at hospitals. Birthing at a hospital can provide you with access to many, many life-saving technologies and procedures, but that access can come with other increased risks, so it's important for you to have this information and to know that all hospitals are not created equal and to do a bit of research and preparation so that you can minimize those risks as best as you can. Remember, you are the consumer. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Welcome, Neil. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Adriana. You've got a really powerful message, and I'm so glad that people are picking up on it. But before we get into what that is, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be so intrigued about cesarean rates. Uh, Sure. So I'm an obstetrician, but I became one by accident. I thought it was the last thing that I would do in medical school. And uh, because of that, I signed up to do it first to get it over with. And uh, it turned out that I liked it because uh, you kind of get to do everything. You get to deliver babies, you get to do some primary care, you get to do some surgery. Um, there are all these deep social justice issues in women's health that, frankly, I hadn't thought much about before I got to see it with my own eyes. And I liked being around people who cared about that stuff. So I ended up becoming an obstetrician. But along the way, I also had a background uh, working in uh, politics and public policy and thinking about healthcare improvement in general. And so when I ended up caring for women and thinking about childbirth, I saw lots of opportunity there for improvement. So uh, now I'm in a job where I spend my time thinking about how we develop solutions to uh, improving care in childbirth and other domains of healthcare. Which definitely brings us to this, this, I don't want to say pet project, but this, this a, not obsession. <laughs> What's the word? I'm you can looking call it an obsession and/or a pet project. I think all of that's accurate. So <laughs> inspiration, like your muse about cesarean rates. What? How did you end up there? Well, so I uh, spent a lot of time before even becoming an obstetrician thinking about the fact that in healthcare we basically there are two ways that people can get hurt inadvertently in our healthcare systems. One is when we as clinicians 
fail to do enough. Uh, and the other is when we do more than we should. Um, and, you know, people get hurt both ways. But uh, when you're working inside of the healthcare delivery system, most of the efforts to make patients safer is focused on the too little problem. And there's not a lot of really good thinking about how we deal with the problem too much. Uh, and for me, um, when I got my job as a professor, I was looking at childbirth and trying to figure out what we can do to make things better. And uh, it became very, very clear that the prototype of the too much problem, not just in childbirth, but the entire healthcare delivery system uh, is cesarean rapes. This is an issue where, um, you know, we've seen a 500% increase in C-section rates in just the last generation or two of moms in the U.S. Uh, about half of those C-sections seem to be unnecessary, uh, and we're hurting people. Hundreds of thousands of women end up getting large incisions they never needed every year. Uh, tens of thousands of those women get major surgical complications that could have been avoided. Um, and in total, it's about $5 billion of spending that we could be investing in improving care in much more productive ways. Those are big numbers. Yeah. I mean, a 500% increase over two generations? Did Dude, you say? So, yeah, so five, it, 500%, that's right. And uh, it, it's happened so quickly that, you know, I was speaking to a room of obstetricians where there have been people in practice for a few decades um, and you can ask people to raise their hand if you've been in practice for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. People who've been around for the last 30 to 40 years have seen that entire 500% increase just in their time. Um, so it's been relatively recent. And we're now at a point where C-sections are the most common major surgery performed on human beings. It's the most common major surgery performed on Americans. And it's the most common major surgery performed on any group of people in any room that you walk into, even a room that has a lot of men in it. It's still the most common major surgery. Um, and even, even as a surgeon myself, it's hard for me to believe that one in three human beings needs a major surgery to be born, you know? Indeed. And especially <laughs> when you consider, absolutely, when you consider with specifically towards, you know, we're dealing with birth, which is not an illness. It's not, you know, it's a physiological process. You're not coming in with a situation that requires surgery in, in theory, right? Um and, and, and I think it matches perfectly with your thoughts about the too much problem and these numbers and how it skyrocketed. Like, how did we get here? What happened? Well, it's complicated. But um, the first thing I'll say is that uh, birth is, is a natural process and theoretically surgery should not be necessary. But nature can be cruel um, in parts of the world where people don't have access to help you know, as many as one in 10 women can die in childbirth, you know, and so there, there's a lot about our ability to help each other out that's important. Um, so I, I don't want to dismiss that. But again, you can hurt people both ways by not doing enough for them and also by doing too much. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, and and we have, I mean, we love that we've gotten to this place where I think part of that and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the part of the reason why we're doing more cesareans now is because they become safer and safer and safer. So the risk of a cesarean right. seems to be less. That's right. The first C-sections, you know, you basically you do a C-section as a last ditch thing. You'd plan on the mom not making it through because they were so dangerous. Um, but, you know, we because we've gotten so good at doing C-sections, we've made them very safe. And so in the moment when you're doing a C-section, you always feel like you're doing the right thing. Like, I like to joke that I personally always do a C-section that's necessary because if the baby comes out looking perfect, you think, well, it's a good thing I did a C-section. And if the baby comes out looking blue, you think, well, man, it's a good thing I did a C-section. So it's pretty good to be me because I'm always right. That's the, the sort of the optics problem. Um, but when you step back, as we um, talked about, we're, we're doing a lot of harm. And um, 
you know, the reasons why we've seen that 500% increase are mysterious, but a lot of the conventional wisdom doesn't bear out. So, you know, it's not well explained by the fact that moms in the 70s looked different from moms now. You know, moms are older, there's more obesity, there's more chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension, there's more in vitro uh, babies, and all of that contributes. But we've seen C-section rates go up in 18-year-olds just as quickly as it's gone up in 35-year-olds. And because there are more 18-year-olds than 35-year-olds out there having babies, you know, the demographic shifts in our country don't really explain what's going on. Reimbursement doesn't explain it very well. Medical malpractice, even though it seems like it should, it doesn't, because during eras when medical malpractice policies haven't changed, it's continued to skyrocket. Um, and then there's this narrative out there that women are demanding C-sections, and it's actually less than half a percent of moms that request them. And so that doesn't explain a 500% increase either. So then what explains it? Or what have you found? Well, this is going to be uh, a little bit of an abstraction, but <laughs> basically, um, over time, as our capabilities in healthcare have uh, grown, so has the complexity of the healthcare system. And, you know, it's interesting to me that in pretty much every other domain of our lives, science has simplified, you know, from how we get around to how we communicate to how we put food on the table. But in healthcare, scientific capabilities just rendered tons of complexity. And what complexity creates is more opportunities to mess up. Uh, and so if you think about it, the modern labor and delivery unit, it actually looks very different from the way it did in the 70s. A labor and delivery unit that a normal, healthy mom might walk into has all the functionality of a cardiac ICU. You know, an ICU isn't defined by a ventilator. It's defined by the ability to have one nurse per patient. So the cardiac ICU does that. The labor floor does that. Um, the cardiac ICU can monitor heart rates in real time. The labor floor does that all the time. The cardiac ICU can titrate medicines on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. So does the labor floor. The only difference between the labor floor and the cardiac ICU functionally is that on the labor floor, the operating rooms are attached. So what you have is actually the most intense treatment area of the entire hospital for the healthiest patients. And when you look at it that way, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why we're doing too much. Mm -hmm. And for my listeners, because I, I know that's something I didn't learn until recently. What does titrating, I can't even say it, titrating medicines oh, titrating. mean? That's, yeah. So basically, you know, uh, it's very common to be hooked up to an IV uh, where, you know, you might get fluids, you might get a medication called Pitocin or Oxytocin that helps with your labor um, or can make your contractions stronger. And with all of these medicines, you know, they, they usually come in through a drip. So the rate at which these medicines go into your body can be controlled on a minute to minute basis. And that's what the nurse is often adjusting on that pole that's that's next to you on the bed. Mm -hmm. And which that in itself was a huge development in terms of shifting maternity care in general, for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I would bet that nearly everybody listening, their grandparents were born at home. And uh, it's just, again, in the last generation or two that we've institutionalized birth uh, and death, honestly. And honestly, we, we, we mess both up in very similar ways by taking, you know, life's only two certainties and treating them as pathologies. You've got so many good sound bites. <laughs> <laughs> like that, like, oh, I got to write that down. Like, I want to sure to that. Well, it's a 45 minute podcast, so I can't, I can't use them all up. No, no. Um, so going back to it. So it's very complex how, you know, the system is set up in the labor and delivery floor. Okay. So we established that. What does that mean for moms and how does that relate to cesarean section rates? Well, what it means is, here's the thing. So the 500% increase over time is disturbing, but the plot thickens. 
Because if you just look at any moment in time, like you take the year 2017, and then you you freeze time and you look across the United States, which is what like scientists like me like to do, and you look at C-section rates from one hospital compared to the next, it turns out that the variation in C-section rates from one hospital to the next is tenfold. The lowest C-section rate at a hospital is 7%, and the highest is 70%. And then you're like, okay, well, that's kind of wild. That's a lot of variation. But some hospitals may take care of sicker patients than others. So you, then you account for that. And it turns out you see 15-fold variation. You see more variation, not less. And what that means is, in 2017, the biggest risk factor for the most common surgery performed on Earth is not a woman's preferences or risks, but literally which hospital she goes to, like which door she walks through. Um, And that's crazy. That's wrong. Like your number one risk factor should not be the hospital that you show up at. And a lot of it in that we found was probably the clue to figuring out, you know, what's going on with C-section rates, why we overdo it, and more importantly, what we can do about it. Mm. Huge. So so answer for me those questions. What, What did you find out and what can moms do about it? Well, those are a couple questions, but the the first thing is that uh, given the complexity of these environments, what seems to explain the differences from place to place, at least partly, are people's ability to manage that complexity. Okay, so so just bear with me for a second. Let's use a restaurant analogy. Most people don't pick their restaurants based on who their waiter is going to be. But in healthcare, most people pick which hospital they're going to deliver at based on who their obstetrician is going to be. I'm not saying that waiters and obstetricians are the same, but, you know, people generally realize that you can have the best waiter, the best chef, the best ingredients, the best menu, and still get a terrible meal at the end. That's the sort of idea of systemness, that the whole thing has to kind of work together. Um, And on labor floors, it's a very similar thing. You can have the best doctor, um, but there are a lot of moving parts and they all have to sort of be in sync. Um, That's what I mean by your ability to manage complexity. And it, in every industry, you know, management and performance are linked, of course. That's why business schools exist. Uh, but on labor and delivery units, um, this hadn't been something that had been well understood or well studied. And um, as it turns out, the people that are running labor and delivery units have some of the hardest jobs in healthcare. Because if you think about it, you know, if you're the one that's figuring out how to staff your labor floor, uh, you have no idea when your customers are going to show up. And then once they show up, you don't know how long their labor is going to take. Um, And then you don't know which one of them might become sick enough to need you to deploy resources like a blood bank or an operating room. Uh, And so that's a really, really difficult management challenge. And we found that there are some people that do it really, really well and other people who do it, frankly, pretty poorly. Uh, And the people who do it well um, are much better prepared to, you know, take safe care of their patients, both in terms of the too little and the too much problem. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple 
even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since my life in a book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. So what are some of these conditions that you saw that are more supportive of a lower cesarean rate? Like what constitute a better management of their complexities? Well, one of the biggest, um, which uh, I'm guessing your audience knows very well, is just being able to provide birth support. Um, we're one of the only areas of healthcare where we've had to professionalize caregiving beyond what the clinicians can do by, you know, there, there's a whole profession of doulas that act as um, essentially, you know, coaches and support people. And one of the big differences, I think, is your ability to provide that support by deploying your staff in ways that uh, make sure that the right patient gets the right care at the right time. You know, usually the way labor floors work they're not the cash cow for the hospital. They don't make a lot of money. The cardiac ICU, even though it's set up very similarly, makes much more money. Uh, and as a result, most labor floors are a little bit strapped. They usually don't have all the nurses they need or all the rooms that they need. And so they're really, really tight on resources and have to figure out how to manage them uh, dynamically and shuffle the deck when things get busy because you can get these unexpected surges in patient volume or acuity. Um, all that's sort of deep in the weeds and kind of complicated, but the stepped back answer is that 
it turns out we've got lots of evidence from a management point of view, from a design point of view, that the environment around your doctor or your midwife really, really influences the care that you get. That's really the big insight. Most patients think that the care that they get depends on how they're doing. And the truth is, the care that you get depends equally on how everyone else on the labor floor is doing, the other patients and the staff. Right. Because if the hospital, if, if the floor just got full and there's no rooms and I'm just thinking of one of our local hospitals here that is a small hospital that is now in very high demand. And more often than not, I see it more and more. It's busy. It's busy. It's busy. And I'm hearing more, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years, so I can do have my own anecdotal <laughs> comparison. Um, but then they start overflowing labor rooms into the maternity area, right? Empty maternity rooms then become labor rooms, staging and, and trying to manage all that. Because you, as you said, you don't know how many people are going to walk in the door and, and what do you do with them? You got it. We've got some research that uh, is starting to suggest that the difference between showing up at a, on a busy labor floor and a quiet labor floor as a woman is the same thing as aging several years in terms of your risk of getting a C-section or other bad outcomes. Wow. Not that a C-section is a bad outcome in and of itself, but your risk of hemorrhage, your risk of infection, um, all of that is dependent on what's going on around you. And yeah, I mean, like being on a busy labor floor can be the equivalent of aging like six, seven years, which in childbirth matters. Right. Because you then can jump into that advanced maternal age, that lovely, lovely phrase, advanced right. maternal age. Right. <laughs> but I mean, like when we think about risk as clinicians, that's a really powerful framing because you know, we, we think about age as a risk for diabetes, hypertension, all kinds of things, you know, in healthcare. And uh, the fact that a busy labor floor can confer the same risk is huge. But it also suggests that when we're trying to develop a solution, uh, we should be developing a solution in that sandbox, you know, and not only thinking about tort reform, you know. <laughs> right. So I know that in your, in your studies, you look, it included birth centers as well, right? Yeah, we've, we, I've spent that. It's been such an education for me to spend some time in birth centers. That's right. So I want to get your insights as to how did birth centers compare with their cesarean rates? And of course, that would involve a transfer. Was there any like difference between a hospital and a birth center in terms generalizing of cesarean rates? Yes, of course. Um, I think, you know, there, there's very different contexts there. Um, but I think there is a lot to be learned from looking at birth centers and comparing them to um, hospitals, even though that, you know, birth centers are fundamentally set up to take care of a different patient population. And, um, you know, hospitals have to care for low risk people and high risk people and birth centers only have to care for low risk people. And that sets up different challenges. So I, I very much appreciate that difference. But it, it wasn't until I went to a birth center, for instance, that I realized that, you know, the birth center assumes that women are going to be walking around in labor. And that changes everything about the way that the workflow goes, the way it's designed. Whereas, you know, the hospital, um, the bed is in the center of the room. And like we think of patients and beds almost in synonymous terms when we do facility planning. You know, we have the only part of the hospital that routinely admits people that don't need a bed right away. And that actually blows people's mind when you talk to people who are not in the childbirth world. Um, so that's one big difference. Um, you know, I think birth centers generally are much better about admitting people um, at the right time and preparing their patients for early labor. Often the sort of ambiguity around early labor is what leads to, you know, upstream interventions before they need to happen. 
you know, there are a lot of best practices that I saw at birth centers that I think confer lessons um, that we could try to adopt in hospital settings too. Um, and I also think there's a big opportunity in our country to scale up the availability of birth centers for for moms who who want that option. And I think that is a huge point because in a lot of places, there isn't the choice. You only can go into this very busy hospital because that's the only thing or a small hospital in, in a rural rural area. And and yeah, if if the place you walk into to give birth has such an enormous weight on your risk for a cesarean, then not having options and choices and variations of that and being able to choose different restaurants, right? Different hospitals, then that plays a, a very important role in that. That's right. I mean, I think there's room to leverage the, I mean, I think people often don't have choices within the degrees of freedom they do have to pick where they go. I think that, you know, there, there's room to improve the way that um, people are able to pick the best place to get, have a baby for them. And, you know, we can talk about that uh, separately, but it, it, it isn't a big issue that basically there's only one model here, which is the, the ICU, whether you're low risk or high risk. Whereas, um, you know, in the UK, there are four different kinds of birth settings. You can have a baby at home and it's actually deemed to be safer for a certain defined population of people. Um, you can have a baby in a what they call a freestanding birth center in a, in a long side birth center that's affiliated with the hospital or in a normal hospital labor and delivery unit. But women are offered all four choices. Um, they can choose what best fits, fits what they want. And... Yeah, I know you have studied how the UK does their models. And I've read an article that you said, you know, I, I, I paraphrased the, the title, but it was something like, I am an obstetrician and I don't necessarily think all babies should be born in hospitals or something. What was, am I that right? Was more like that yeah. Close enough? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, so what happened was the, the, the UK, they have an institute called the National Institutes for Health and Care Excellence, which is sort of like their FDA. And they're the ones who put out guidelines for their healthcare system to follow. And that institute in the UK said that it was safer, not safe, but safer for a low-risk mom who, for whom it was her second baby or, or more to have her baby outside the hospital with a midwife than with an obstetrician in the hospital. Safer. And the argument was that, you know, for the baby, it's basically equivalently safe in terms of the outcomes for the baby, but at the hospital, the risks of getting an unnecessary intervention like a surgery are much, much higher. And um, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is sort of like the standard bearer for my field, uh, invited me to write a response. And at first I thought like, you know, I really like my job. I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> um, and frankly, I thought the UK was kind of crazy having not known very much about how things work over there. Um, but then I read more into it and I realized that there's nothing inherently safe about a home or a hospital. And that there are totally legitimate reasons to want to have a baby at home. And there's huge opportunity to make homes safer than they are right now. Um, because it's not about the home. There's nothing magical about it. It's about the system around the home. And similarly, there are safety concerns at hospitals. And there's opportunities to improve hospitals, too. Um, so I made the case that, you know, which seemed radical to um, my, within my profession, that uh, you know, there could be there could be a reason to want to have a baby at home and that there could be an opportunity to make home safer. And maybe that's where we ought to focus as opposed to just, you know, having a very dichotomous debate about what's inherently safer. Right. And from what I understand, the crux of it is goes back to that system, right, of how well 
caregivers at home work with caregivers in hospitals to be able to provide that seamless and supportive transfer of care in case of a need for the the ICU, basically. Right. I mean, um, it's all about expectations. But, you know, for first-time moms who try to have babies at home, uh, the data in the UK and in Canada and the Netherlands and, you know, other countries who've tried to build these systems up, uh, where you have that kind of integration, what they, what they show is about half of moms, if it's their first time, who start off at home, end up needing the hospital in the end. And when I first saw that, I was like, man, what are they doing? This is crazy. Like, why would they set moms up so that half of them end up needing to be transferred to the hospital? And the reason I felt like it was crazy is because I imagined what would happen here in the U.S. where um, you'd end up at a hospital, the hospital would say, who are you? I mean, it's that, and that's what we're used to seeing. Uh, whereas in the UK, it's not seamless, but it's so much better, right? Like they send a midwife to you and you get like one-to-one support from a qualified midwife, which is amazing. And then they've got really clear protocols where they, they transfer you. And within 30 minutes, you end up uh, in a hospital and they know exactly who you are and there's a handoff uh, and it, it looks and works very different. Yeah. And, and not all needing you know transfers of going to the hospital are because something bad is happening either it could also be like mom decides that says you know what i can't do this i want an epidural and i can't get an epidural at home and i've changed my mind so let's go in which is totally cool right and that that's actually that was the big insight that i tried to convey in that article was that you know a 50 percent transfer rate isn't a sign of health system failure it's actually a signal of success if you're able to successfully transfer 50 percent of your patients and get really good outcomes, you know, it, meant, it just depends if you're a glass half full or half empty person. But one way of looking at it is that you're giving half of first time moms a shot at having their baby at home. And if you really think about it, the only reason to be tethered to a hospital bed under fluorescent lighting when you're having your baby is because you believe it's safer, right? But if that's not the case, like, why wouldn't you want the intimacy and privacy and comfort of your home? Right. Oh, this is so fascinating. So let's bring it back to that individual mom. Faced with this new information, what can she do to try to have not fall into that increased cesarean risk? Well, there's probably a few things that moms can do both individually and collectively, and I want to talk about both. So I think, you know, individually, one thing that seems to make a big difference is being intentional about where you go for care. And I think you obviously, your relationship with your primary provider, your midwife or your obstetrician matters a lot because you see them a lot and they make really consequential decisions for you. Um, And they support you through what is a really, uh, you know, remarkable process where your whole body goes through these radical transformations in a really short period of time. But on average, you'll see them like a dozen times in nine months. So having that relationship matters a lot, but it equally matters where you'll be delivering your baby. And I think paying attention to the hospital or facility C-section rate matters. And if it's very high, it doesn't mean that you automatically shouldn't go there, but it it should be a a starting point for conversations about why that's the case and how that might apply to you personally. So I I think sort of paying attention to the quality of the facility that you're going to be going to, where C-section rates are a measure of quality, uh, is important. Um, I think the other thing is going in mentally prepared for what labor is. I mean, I think, you know, if you have goals, you have the goal of having a natural delivery, I think it's important to 
uh, think about it and prepare for it the way you would for any other athletic event, which is what this is. I mean, it's not dissimilar from a marathon. And so you may want to think like, what does my support look like? Do I want to coach there? You know, would I run a marathon without practicing? <laughs> like, you know, um, and, and sort of sort of going in um, prepared for that um, is important. I also think that there are a lot of things that are legitimately preference sensitive about the way that you want your birth to go. And it's very reasonable and a good idea to assert those preferences, but also realize that things can change and they can be the circumstances around your birth, or it could just be that you changed your mind and want an epidural. And that's totally fine. Um, but going in with at least a straw man in your mind of what, what, you know, among the things you have the freedom to choose, how you'd like it to go, who you, who you want in the room to support you, uh, all the way through to, um, you know, do you want the baby on your chest right away? All of these things are, are important. Collectively, I think there's a huge opportunity for moms to assert their voice in, in order to get what I think that they deserve. I mean, I think moms are used to putting themselves last in order to put their families first. And it's high time that they get the support and investment that they deserve. When you look, when you step back and look at our country, we have the highest rates of maternal death and injury in the entire developed world. We have the highest prematurity rates. We have the widest disparities. We have the worst access to care. And then just to throw salt into the wound, after all of that, we have the worst paid family leave policies in the entire developed world. And uh, my colleagues and I think the United States can do a lot better than that. Maybe, maybe the thing is that I, I think that there's something about being a mom that makes you inherently resilient. And so like when things are less like moms don't generally complain, right? They just move on. Moms are busy. I've spent a lot of time thinking about why it is that moms are not as well organized. Uh, I mean, politically organized for themselves. Actually, moms are very politically organized for others, right? There's moms against gun violence. There's moms rising. There's all these powerful groups of moms. There's mothers against drunk driving. Um, but when it comes to themselves and their own health, Moms are used to putting themselves last. Um, and I think it might be, um, I guess it's worth just saying that whether moms are complaining or not, th there's an opportunity for us to recognize that moms deserve better uh, and then to, to deliver on that. Indeed. And we, we really focused on birth today, but we look if we look at a broader scope and into what we're seeing in terms of postpartum um, mood disorders, and it, moms are having a hard time becoming moms, and then going from that place that's maybe not so happy into being a mom, they're resilient, but oh my goodness, they do put, you know, we do, I'll include myself, put, put ourselves sort of last. And I had a really interesting guest recently, Dr. Uh, Carrie Conte, and she was talking about how the best way you can take care of baby is to take care of yourself first and to have that split 51% for you, 49% for baby. Because if you start depleting yourself and you can't last that for the long haul, those weeks, also, especially within the, the uh, maternity leave uh, spectrum that we have here in the US, you're going to burn out. That's really well said. and. Um... Maybe what I would add to that is that I think that there's a window of opportunity right now to um, help better support our moms, not just around the moment of childbirth, but in everything that comes afterwards from the, the mood challenges, which are a real thing and affect the plurality of moms because of the physiological event and the enormous upheaval in your life to, uh, you know, working moms that have to balance all that with 
uh, you know, going to work and uh, earning their livelihood. And, you know, one of the consequences of the uncertain times that we live in right now is that it stoked a fire of activism in this country um, that we haven't seen in decades, where people are standing up for all of the things that they believe in. You know, the, the March for Moms, uh, I'm not sure if it would have been possible a few years ago. You know, we, we really just created a canvas and a wireframe and then it filled itself in. And I think it's because um, there's a moment right now where there's real momentum behind improving maternal health and making things better for moms. Oh, and I, I am so excited. I want to. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> Neil, thank you so, so much for this wonderful talk. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Neil Shaw, who is also the co-founder of March for Moms, a coalition of more than 20 leading organizations that focuses on increasing public and private investment in the well-being of mothers. You can find Neil on Instagram at Neil underscore T underscore Shaw, and that's spelled N-E-E-L underscore T underscore S-H-A-H. And you can connect with us also on Instagram at Birthful Podcast. In fact, if you are loving the series, love this episode, and are not driving, we would love it if you would take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to Instagram sharing your biggest takeaway from the episode. Make sure to tag at Birthful Podcast so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about my birth and postpartum preparation classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. If you find this podcast to be an invaluable resource for you, the best way to support us is by taking any one of my perinatal classes, doing one of my doula workshops, or trying out some of the wonderful products made by our sponsors. This is what allows us to continue doing this work. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plati. This episode was produced in part by LWC Studios and Paulina Velasco. Thank you so very much for listening to and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on GoodPod, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and just everywhere you listen, and then come back for more ways to inform your intuition. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.